<clears throat> when I grew up, growing up, this has nothing to do with my message, um, but growing up, I would um, hear about Ottawa. My sister lived here for a few years, and uh, I kept hearing about the experimental farm. And all I could think of, seriously, was like cows with three eyes and horses with... And you would be disturbed to realize how long it took me in my life to realize it was for plants. And uh, <laughs> I was well past childhood before I realized, oh no, they're not experimenting on animals. Uh, anyway, so that's, uh, I think of that, I know it's nearby here. Every time we come to read a view, I think, uh, yeah, I remember when I thought there were three-eyed cows and cows and three-eyed cows in Ottawa. Anyway, I've been asked to speak on, I guess you're going through your statement of faith on Sundays, and uh, I was asked to speak on uh, future things which obviously is a huge topic, so Brian said I could speak till two or three. <laughs> I was going to actually complain about this being a large topic and other people getting short ones, and then I looked through the Statement of Faith and realized they're all huge topics, so I don't, I don't have anything particularly to complain about. But it is surely an important topic, and um, uh, we'll mention this a bit later, but sometimes it kind of gets maybe relegated to the idea of it's just kind of esoteric and it's not really important, it's not really practical, um, it's fascinating, but it's it's not, it's almost like it's not spiritual, it's just, uh, it's just details. But I think, I hope we'll see today that it isn't um, just details, that it really is important, it really is uh, something that the Lord wants us to be, uh, to take seriously and to value uh, from the scriptures. So I think I have, if I do this properly, this is the, uh, this is what's in your statement of faith concerning future things. And we're going to hopefully touch on most of those things. But like I said, obviously, it's a massive topic and uh, it goes on for eternity. And hopefully the message won't. But the, we have to kind of skip through very high level a few of these items. So let's pray and then we'll think a bit about this topic. Our Father, we're thankful for uh, the chance to get together. We thank you for the joy it is to sing these songs concerning the Lord Jesus and concerning his plans and purposes. We thank you for the um, uh, meeting earlier to remember him. We thank you now for the time in front of us to look into the word of God together. And we would pause and just be grateful that we have the word of God, that you haven't left us in this um, dangerous and dark and uncertain world. You haven't left us to our own devices. You haven't left us to guess you haven't left us to come up with our own ideas about what's right and wrong and about God and about eternity and about salvation, but you have given us something certain and sure, the word of God. And so we are grateful for that. We ask that as we look into it now, you would give further help by your Holy Spirit to uh, open our minds and hearts and lives to what is written here and that you would uh, enlighten us and change us by the word of God so that we might be drawn closer to your son. And we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, I just want to, I have three kind of parts to the message. I want to talk about very quickly uh, some dangers we face when we um, discuss this topic. And then secondly, uh, what is just a very brief overview of what the Bible gives to us as what's in store in the future, what events are upcoming. And then thirdly, um, I want to close with just talking about why this is important to talk about, why it's not just kind of um, interesting details, uh, but why it's actually going to be, and why it's relevant in our in our lives. So I have a few um, dangers to avoid. 
Uh, one is uh, you have to avoid obsessing on this topic. That's an easy thing to do. Uh, some people, uh, um, you know, they just get into prophecy and it's very fascinating. It's interesting. There's lots to learn. It's all good. But um, sometimes they can get too into prophecy and it's like it's the only topic in the Bible for them. And uh, that's something maybe we want to avoid. We want to avoid the opposite extreme, which is ignoring it. Um, and maybe, you know, like with always these, these extremes, one tends to produce the other. People get turned off by someone who's obsessed and they just now never want to talk about prophecy. They say there's no point, it's all, uh, and, and whatever. Like, there is a point and it is worth talking about. And like so much in the Christian life, we need balance. We need to avoid these, these extremes. Uh, another one that if you've ever heard much talk about prophecy, um, probably not, you don't have to worry about it, read a view, but if you went to the, um, certainly if you went to YouTube and stopped, looked, started looking up Bible prophecy, you would find there is a wild, wild, wild amount of speculation. And it's, I'm sure, very fascinating, but it's, it's not profitable. And it brings a lot of discredit upon Christianity because you have people up there making these statements as if they're biblical. And then if, if unbelievers hear it and, all these, you know, interpretations come out, turn out to be not true, as they inevitably do, then unbelievers think, it's, it's wrong to think this way, but you can see where they'd get this impression, uh, the Bible is wrong, or Christians are wrong, or Christianity is wrong about all of these things. And it's not that the Bible is wrong, of course, it's that this guy's wild speculations about the Bible are wrong. And so, if, um, if you, if you, anyway, if you, if you, delve into this too much, if you delve into kind of online resources especially, but even some Christian books and things, you're going to find that oh, here's a here's something to avoid, is speculating about things. There's lots of details, but um, how many times through history have you had people say so-and-so is the Antichrist? Like they've figured it out and they've, you know, calculated numbers from their name and everything else and uh, said, ta-da, this proves that this person's the Antichrist. And, it's just not, it's not helpful. It's not, it's not edifying. So we want to avoid that. And then the last one we want to avoid is, of course, we want to avoid division over these things. They're important and they're worth talking about and they're worth learning about. They're not, you know, but God hasn't put them here for us to fight about them or to divide about them. But nonetheless, we just want to be kind of show some balance and some care. So there's a principle I want to, uh, us to look at before we get into the um, get into the actual kind of upcoming order of events the Bible gives us. But I'll read you a verse, a very well-known verse from Isaiah 9. You'll forgive me for not reading this at Christmas time, but um, Isaiah 9 and verse 6 says, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. This is an example, one of many, many, many examples from the Old Testament of a um, uh, something the Old Testament does uh, without apology, and that is it, it compresses the two comings to the earth of the Lord Jesus into one verse or one sentence. That's what's happened here. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's talking about Christ coming as a baby in the incarnation to Bethlehem. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Well, that's looking forward to when he returns to set up his kingdom on the earth. Right? And it's, it's presented there in one sentence as if it all happened together. And uh, so 
there is a, I have a little chart, and this gives us a, a little diagram, I mean, of, uh, we'll get to charts in a minute, uh, a little diagram of what's, uh, what we see is happening. Now, somebody's coined the term for this, the great parenthesis, but the little telescope there is picturing where the Old Testament prophet would be looking. And he's kind of looking, and he sees the cross and the crown together in his, in his viewpoint. From his perspective, they're together. But from our perspective, we see there's a great valley between the two. There's a, there's a lot of space between those two things. And that's what's going on um, with these examples in the Old Testament, where the two comings of Christ are presented as being um, kind of in the same sentence or looks like they're happening at the same time. They don't see, and the prophets didn't always see the gap between those two things. We have the benefit of hindsight and further revelation from the Bible. So we're, we're living in the great parenthesis. So of course we can, our perspective is different. We would look back to see the cross and forward to see the second coming. But we understand their, uh, the dilemma that they were facing. Uh, this is such a big dilemma, in fact, that uh, a lot of Jewish people were, were in st scholars, serious um, uh, Jewish uh, scholars were baffled by this in Old Testament times. I mean, are still baffled by it today, quite frankly, but because they would read all of these prophecies about the coming Messiah, and some of them would be talking about a Messiah that was going to suffer and die. And some of them would talk about a Messiah that was going to overcome all their enemies and reign in glory. And uh, they didn't see how that could be. And uh, I think we should sympathize. <laughs> you know, if we didn't have the benefit of the New Testament and living, you know, in the time period we live in, uh, we might be confused by that too. That how are those, all of those prophecies true? Because they seem contradictory. And so much so that... Um, some people came up with this uh, this idea there were two messiahs. There was Messiah Ben Joseph who was going to suffer, and there was Messiah Ben David who was going to reign. And uh, that was their solution. There were two different people. But even that doesn't really fix the problem, because if you look at either, when you think about it, which one, David and Joseph, which one suffered and which one reigned in their life? They both suffered, and they both reigned. And this is not an uncommon thing at all, that once you start thinking about it, you realize this isn't as big a mystery as we think, like, or, 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 or Moses. I mean, how many people in the scriptures do we read of? And there was a time of suffering and sometimes dreadful suffering in their lives, followed by a time of glory. Joseph's a wonderful example of it. I mean, rejected by his family, sold into slavery, like sold into slavery. This wasn't a bad day. This was this is suffering like we don't comprehend. And then, you know, imprisoned and wrongly accused and wrongly condemned and all of these things. And then one day, just in a in a in an instant, transformed from that to glory is the second most powerful man on earth. And uh it's it's true. David's um, you know, Joseph's and David both had terrible suffering and terrible and tremendous glory. And that's certainly true of our of our Lord Jesus. So what it tells us is that when we look at prophecy in the Bible, especially if we're looking at the whole Bible and we want to look at the Old Testament as well, it doesn't always present it um, maybe the way we would have chosen to present it. <laughs> like maybe you've got a mind that is, uh, you want, like, we want it like a textbook and we want like everything clearly laid out with nice charts and everything else. Now I like charts, don't get me wrong. Um, and uh, 
you're going to be thankful that I only have one chart today, but I have a lot more charts on my computer. And uh, nonetheless, the idea is that's helpful to us in some ways, but that's not the way the Bible was written. Okay, the Bible is greater than that, and the Bible is is living and active, and it wasn't written the way we might write it today um, if we're trying to make a textbook, because it's not written as a textbook. God has something has it far greater than that. But it, it does mean that there are going to be some things that are mysteries. And just like an Old Testament believer might have looked at this and been baffled by it, and we look at it and say, oh, it's totally clear what's happened. Like, there's, not, there's no mystery at all. I think we're going to find that there are some things that we looked at and we were totally baffled by. And when we get to see the whole picture, we're going to look at it and say, wow, was it ever simple? We should have seen through it earlier. We should have under, understood earlier. And God, God sees the big picture. And obviously, God's not confused. And, uh, but we should be prepared when we come to Bible prophecy to understand there are going to be some things that are difficult for us to understand and to kind of put in the in kind of a nice clean order and to fit every detail into place and it's not because they're not true or they're contradictory any more than this was contradictory it's just that we haven't seen the whole the whole picture yet so now as a as a as one way to approach what are the upcoming events i just want to take us on a very high level tour of the book of revelation now uh, it will not come as a shock to you to discover that um, there's vastly more in Revelation than we're going to cover this morning. And there are lots of things in Revelation that would be difficult to understand. And there would be lots of things that maybe uh, we, or at least I, couldn't say this is exactly what this means. But that shouldn't scare us off reading the book of Revelation, because actually that is true, whether we realize it or not, of every single book of the Bible. There's more in every book in the Bible than we currently understand. And, and whether we, maybe it's more evident to us when we get to something like Revelation, but it's true of all of Scripture because it's God's Word. It's, it's bigger and deeper and richer than we can, and than we can understand and we can grasp. And especially with these fallen bodies and fallen minds in a fallen world, it's, it's so much more than we're capable of taking in. Now, it becomes more clear in something like Revelation, perhaps, but nonetheless, it's true of all of Scripture. And that shouldn't scare us off, because God is still, just because we can't necessarily nail down and memorize every last detail, it doesn't prevent us from getting the big picture and taking in the main points and benefiting from that. It's, it's what we do with every other book of the Bible. Right? None of us knows every detail about every book of the Bible, but we get lots of benefit from all the other books because we can see the main points and the main themes and the main ideas and the things that, are, that jump out at us as being applicable and helpful in our lives. And we don't, we don't um, kind of throw all of that out because there's one or two verses in the book that we don't fully understand. So I would encourage us to think like that about the book of Revelation. That there, what we're going to do today is we're going to take a very simple overview of the book because it is largely, not entirely, but it is largely laid out chronologically as, a, as an outline of future events. Now, we're, not, we're going to, one of the nice things about just having to do an overview is I get to skip all the hard parts. And, uh, but I just want us to see that as a whole, it's not meant to be a confusing book, and it doesn't have to be a confusing book. 
the um, the the kind of the flow of it as we go through it from a high level just out, outlines for us very clearly the order of events of things that are that are to come. So, uh, having said that, what do we have for? We have a little chart that will go along with our. It's my one and only chart for today, so be happy. Uh, the that's going to go along with what we see in the book of Revelation. If we go to Revelation chapter one, we would read. We're not going to read it now, but we read that the Lord Jesus appears to John, and after John sees this um, incredible vision of the Lord Jesus and falls down at his feet, the Lord speaks to him. And he says this in verse 19, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And that's a little overview of the book of Revelation right there. Write, he says, tell him some write three things. Write the things which you have seen. That's chapter one. John writes down the vision that he saw of the Lord Jesus. Then he says, write down the things which are. That's going to be chapters two and three. That's his letter to the seven church, letters to the seven churches. And it's describing seven actual churches who existed at that actual time and the states they were in and, and the problems they faced and the challenges they faced and their good points and their bad points and, and, and so on. Those are the things which are, and he's got to write those. And then he's told he's going to have to write the things which will take place after these things, which is basically Revelation 4 until the end of the book. And that's, that's Christ's breakdown of the book of Revelation. And so what we have is, John's had this vision, that's chapter one. And in chapter two and three, we have an account of the churches that existed on, um, in, in Christ's seven churches that existed in John's day and messages that Christ wanted to give to them. But it's been pointed out by people who um, study it. There's lots of different ways you can look at those and take men of it from those seven letters to seven churches. They were absolutely seven literal churches that existed at that time. But we read those letters and we see, uh, oh yeah, there, there are churches like that all through time. Right? Like that, that's not just in John's day that they had a variety of churches facing a variety of struggles and needs, that that's happened all through church history. <clears throat> and so even today in 2022, if we read Revelation two and three, right, we're not one of those seven churches. We're not exactly like one of those seven churches. But we would go through those chapters and we'd say, well, this certainly applies to our church and this applies to our church and this applies to, like there's benefits for us. We can see that the kinds of problems that they faced and struggled with back in, you know, 2000 years ago, well, they haven't, those problems haven't gone away. Um, you know, we're, we're still fallen people getting together and, and we, that brings some problems with it. We're still in a hostile world that's against us and, and is seeking to, um, you know, oppose everything related to Christ. And, and so the, the situations they face are going to be helpful to us. All, and so those letters are, are helpful all through the church age, Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, some people would go further and they would, they would identify the seven churches as kind of seven different phases of, of church history. But regardless of whether you kind of buy into that last one, you would, you would admit that all of those seven churches, those letters are going to describe events and, and conditions and problems and challenges that we still face today in 2022. And Christ holds himself up in every case as the answer to the problems. Right? That's, that's where churches need to look for their answers for problems. It's always going to be, it's always going to be Christ. And so in chapters two and three, we have a little 
um, a helpful description for us of the church age. Then chapters four and five, John gets caught up into heaven and he gets a glimpse of the throne room of heaven and things that are going on there. And um, it's helpful. It's going to be helpful to John because there's going to be a lot of chaos and destruction and evil uh, taking place on the earth after Revelation 5. And um, what John gets to see before all of that happens, what he gets to see is that it is the Lamb who is unfolding world history. That it, this isn't uh, things getting out of control. And sometimes we're almost guilty of thinking that. I don't think we'd ever put it into words like that. We know God doesn't, you know, isn't out of control. But it, it looks on the earth, or it will look on the earth. I mean, it already looks on the earth, quite frankly. <laughs> so imagine what it would be like in the tribulation. Um, it looks sometimes like things are out of control, doesn't it? Like all of the evil and all of the chaos and all of the anger and all of the confusion and all of the warring and all of the everything, all of the division. It often looks like things are out of control, and it's going to get a lot worse in the future. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, so the uh, John gets to see this little glimpse into heaven uh, and heaven's perspective on it. And we learn that heaven's not worried, and heaven isn't uh, out of control. And not only that, we learn that it's not just that things are running amok on the earth and God has no control over it. We learn that there's a seven-sealed scroll, and the one who's opening it up and breaking seal after seal after seal is the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But when John turns to see who it is, he sees a Lamb. And it's just a little reminder that Christ is in control. And, and let's not evaluate things superficially. Let's not look at conditions in the world and think, oh, things are you know, out of control. And some people have done that. Some people have concluded that God can't control what's going on or God doesn't care about what's going on or, or whatever. But it, it's just because they're looking superficially at things. And so John sees this. Now, there's something that is extremely odd that happens in the book of Revelation at this point. And that is this, that from the book of Acts, chapter 2 on, um, a major theme of the whole New Testament has been the church. Okay, It is, it is uh, their letter after letter after letter written to churches or written to individuals telling them how to behave in churches and the revelation of how the church began and how the church grew and how the church behaved and how the church functions. And it's all about the church. And we get to the book of Revelation and we see that in the opening chapters, when Christ has his final message to send to mankind, what he starts with is telling John about the churches, and he cares about the churches. And when we get to Revelation 19, we're going to see the church, and we're going to see the church plays a major role in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 and 22. But from Revelation 6 to 18, there is not a single reference to the church. It's just, poof, it's gone. It's disappeared. Now, some people might be very confused by why that is, but I don't think we're confused by why that is. Right? We're, it's not mentioned because what we're looking forward to and what many of our songs were about this morning, um, what we're looking forward to, the next event on God's timetable prophetically is what we call the rapture. And that is the church being taken out of this earth to go be with the Lord himself. And after that, uh, well, then we'll get to see what, what, um, how well things work on, on earth 
once you remove the pesky Christians. Um, the, uh, that's what we're looking forward to. We don't know when it's going to happen. We sang about that. Um, you know, we, we, we don't know. It could happen today. We hope it happens today. But we, don't, we don't know when it's going to happen, but the Lord is going to come and he's going to remove the church from this world in a great event called the rapture. We read about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, we read about it in many places, but the, the most detailed, well, one of the most detailed accounts is 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Corinthians 15 is pretty long and detailed too. But at the end of the chapter, it says in verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That is to say, Christians who have already died, so that you will not grieve as though as rest do who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He's telling the Thessalonians that this is what we have to look forward to that the Lord is going to come to the sky and there'll be this great shout and trumpet and the dead in Christ, those Christians who have died, will be caught up, uh, will, will, they'll rise first, they'll be caught up to the Lord. And um, then we who are alive and remain, any Christians who haven't died yet, who are still on the earth, will be caught up together to meet uh, them in the clouds. And thus we shall be forever with the Lord. This is what we're looking forward to. This could happen any moment now. And it's interesting that, that it is so clear that the dead in Christ will rise first. This happens in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. And yet God is very clear that the dead in Christ will rise first. And it's not just here that he's clear about it. If we read in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's going on about this as well <coughs> at length, we read uh, it described this way. In verse 54, when this perishable would, will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And that's not, uh, and that's a duet. <laughs> what it's saying is all of the dead in Christ, where it looked like death won, right? They died, surely, surely death won. They will rise in, in transformed bodies, to be forever with the Lord, right? Unending life. And they will be able to say, oh, death, where is your victory? It looked like you had a victory. Well, where's your victory now? And then all of the Christians who never died will be able to say, oh, death, where is your sting? Right? We didn't even feel the sting of death. And this is, you can, you can turn back. When, he, when Christ meets, we won't turn there now, but when he meets, goes to see Mary and Martha after Lazarus has died, and he, and he talks to Martha, he outlines this same order of events. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and reign will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and that will be forever with the Lord. And this is what we are, this is what we are looking forward to. And I'd encourage us to just think for a second, <laughs> how often do I look forward to that? Like, do I get up in the morning and say, perhaps it's today? Like, I hope it's today, Lord. Is that, this should be a motivating uh, factor in the life of the, of the Christian. And so this is something that, which we've termed the rapture. 
but it talks about when the church is caught up out of this world, just like John was caught up to heaven in Revelation 4. And now the world continues, but the world is continuing without this restraining influence that the, the church brings. And um, we get to see what happens after that. Okay, So that's why from Revelation 6 through Revelation 18, the church, which has been kind of a pervasive subject from Acts 2 on, the church all of a sudden is gone. It's just not there. It's there in the opening chapters of Revelation. It's there in the closing chapters of Revelation. It fills the rest of the New Testament. But in Revelation 6 to 18, there's no church at all because there isn't a church on the earth at that time. The church has been caught up to be with the Lord in, in the clouds. And that's, uh, we've got a little uh, example, of, a little diagram of that on our, on our chart, the little kind of U-shaped arrow. <clears throat> After that, in Revelation, so that's, that's gotten us up to Revelation 5. In Revelation 6 through 18, we have outlined for us a period of time, which is we've called the Tribulation. Uh, it is a series of judgments that are poured out on this earth. And um, the main ones are the seal judgments and then the um, trumpet judgments and then the bowl judgments. And they have, kind of have different natures and it's intriguing. Some people have pointed out, you know, some are, are problems that man brings on the earth and some are problems that the devil brings on the earth and some are problems that God brings on the earth. But it's just, it's judgment after judgment after judgment. And I'll tell you, the world gets to see what it's like to have things their own way. And uh, first they thought they got rid of the Son of God, and now there's no pesky church around. And at first, it will seem to them like things are going quite well. Thank you very much. <laughs> they were, they're going to think that they've finally got things under control the way they like them. We've gotten rid of all the trouble causers, and um, they're not here, and we just get to run things like we want. We just get to have our own way. Now, a Christian would know that having it our way is the whole problem, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. We're back in Israel. There was no king in Israel in the time of the judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Like, it seems like it's going to be good, and it is complete disaster. And it might take a few days or a few years for that to work itself out. But when man gets his own way on the earth, throwing away God's word and God's will and God's desires and God's wishes. When man gets his own way, boy, it is going to be a complete and total nightmare. It deteriorates. It, we see a rapidly unraveling world in those chapters, Revelation 6 through 18. And it all starts seemingly nice. It starts with promises of peace and prosperity and um, everything's going to be good and... Uh, and very quickly, there's poverty and famine and pestilence and disasters. And, uh, and uh, well, it, people talk about natural disasters now. There's, there's going to be natural disasters like they've never seen um, coming in the, in the tribulation. And so this is what's going to happen in Revelation 6 through 18. And so we've got that up there, the tribulation, really about halfway point of the tribulation. It's described a number of different ways. Uh, we're told the tribulation is seven years long, and we're told that after three and a half years or 42 months or 1260 days, um, there's going to be a time of great tribulation. And the halfway point in the tribulation, um, that's when the kind of gloves come off. And Israel, who had had 
uh, a promise of security while the uh, the beast turns on Israel and there's persecution of Israel and and really those last three and a half years are uh, unlike anything the world has ever seen the world's seen some pretty horrible things by the way so to think that there's a time coming that will make all of the sufferings of past ages look like nothing is really uh, I, I can't comprehend it I can't enter into it but it's going to get bleak and appalling and uh, miserable like this world has never like this world has never known so much so that if the Lord says um, if those days had not been cut short if the Lord didn't take it upon himself to intervene no one would be would, would survive it would be the end but of course the Lord does come and intervene so if we turn to Revelation chapter 19 and we haven't read all the of course the details of the tribulation and those intervening chapters although it's most of the book of Revelation is showing what man what he what it's like when he gets his own way um, in Revelation 19, we have this uh, tremendous record of what happens after those days. It says, after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, hallelujah. And this will go on, verse 4, amen and hallelujah. And then down to verse 6, hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. You know, these are all the hallelujahs in the Bible. They're all saved for this. And there are some pretty great events before this. And there will be great events after this, aren't they? Like the resurrection of Christ was a pretty great event. But all of the hallelujahs recorded in the Bible, four of them are recorded in Revelation 19, when the Lord comes back to this earth. And this is what we describe in verse, we read about it in verse 11. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the, the bride of Christ, the church. But it says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what so much of Old Testament prophecy points us to. This is what Israel has been looking for and waiting for and hoping for, the, the Messiah to come and destroy their enemies and, and so on. But, but the Lord Jesus is coming in at this glorious second coming in, in Revelation, this first part of Revelation 19. Now, we don't have time to turn there, but you can read about the details of it in Matthew 25, when at that time he will gather the nations before him and he will go through them and he will he'll separate the sheep from the goats and the goats get cast out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and the sheep they he says come on into the kingdom that has been prepared for you which leads us to the next <coughs> excuse me it leads us to the next event that we have recorded for us in um, the book of revelation and that is in revelation chapter 20 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast and, or his image, he had not uh, and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Um, <clears throat> this is uh, cleverly called the millennium, meaning a thousand years. Um, you can guess why it's called the millennium when you read that, because over and over and over again, almost like God wanted to make the point that it really was a thousand years, he says it's a thousand years in this passage. And um, he says there's going to be a resurrection of the just at the beginning of this. And blessed are those who have part in this first resurrection. Before this, this reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years, there'll be a resurrection of all the, these, these believers who have been killed during, during the tribulation. Uh, and a lot of people would say two or Old Testament believers. The people who were part of the church were raised at the rapture. But that leaves a lot of other believers who died. And these people are raised, and, um, and uh, they reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now there's another resurrection, it says, at the end of the tribulation. That's a resurrection that you don't want to be at. Um, that's the resurrection of all the unjust, of all the ages. And um, they will go on, and we can read in the second half of chapter 11 about how they'll stand in front of the great white throne. But first we have this thousand years of Christ reigning on the earth. And you know, the Old Testament is full of descriptions of this millennial reign of of the Lord Jesus. In fact, when you know when the Lord came to earth the first time in Luke chapter 1, we had this promise even made then. In Luke chapter 1, we read this in uh, verse <clears throat> 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God, God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So it's like he's going to reign on David's throne. He's going to be king of Israel here on the earth. That was the promise. It was promised all through the Old Testament over and over and over again. Messiah was going to come back and reign on David's throne. And when, when the angel appears to Mary and describes the coming of the Lord Jesus, he, he reminds Mary the plan hasn't changed. Like, right? He's going to reign on the throne of his father, David. He really will. And that's what's going to happen during these thousand years. And the Bible has a tremendous amount to say about, about the millennium. It's a fascinating study. And you can look up the, uh, the spiritual conditions and the physical conditions on the earth, like the curse has been removed and there'll be uh, streams and flowers in the desert and there won't be, um, you know, sickness will be gone and uh, the, wolf, the, the lion will, lie, uh, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The, the animals will be tamed. There's all kinds of uh, blessings that uh, all of the kind of physical curses that came on the earth during in the fall get removed and there's just this just these idyllic circumstances now everyone gets to live in Edenic like conditions not just Adam and Eve who messed it up everyone gets to live there 
and um, <clears throat> and we get to see what what it's like with uh, with these perfect conditions, perfect government too. When the Lord Jesus is reigning on the earth, I mean, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what country you're in or who's who's in power. Uh, complaining about the government's always uh, a popular activity. Although, I mean, nothing you complain about the government in the millennium. It'll be perfect government, right? It's Christ. He's not fooled about anything. He doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't get bought off. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have a kind of selfish agenda. He's absolutely flawless, and we get to see the thousand years of reign at the end of it. There he is, you can read of it in Revelation 20 after these opening verses. We read of um, Satan is temporarily freed and he actually leads a revolt against the Lord, but um, that's put down just like every other revolt. And then there's this great white throne and all of the unbelieving dead from all ages are raised to stand in stand before the Lord. And there's no question who's on the throne. All judgment is given to the Son. And this one who uh, they have rejected, this one that they have refused to put their trust in, um, they'll stand before him and he will be their judge. You know, that's a very solemn event. It's, a, it's, a, it's only unbelievers there that day. And they will have the results of having rejected the Lord Jesus and they will be cast, it says here, into the lake of fire. And that's eternal. That's not, uh, Tony Martin calls it global warming and inconvenient truth, but um, it's, uh, you know, the heaven and earth are fled away, this, this old heaven, this old earth gone, and God gives us a, a new one where righteousness, uh, where righteousness dwells. And then the final chapters of the book of Revelation, I know it's not 100%, but um, nonetheless, it'll describe for us the eternal state. I just want us to see, it's a couple of good studies there. You can look at all the things that aren't in heaven, um, because there's quite a number of things listed, like uh, well over a dozen things listed that won't be in heaven. But um, it's, a, it's a great little description. And then Revelation 22, I just want to read the opening verses of that. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the fruit were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will serve him, his bondservants will serve him. They shall see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night, and they will no longer have need of a lamp or a light, nor the light of the sun, the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Um, lots of things that aren't there, if you read in the previous chapter as well. No tears, or mourning, or crying, or pain, or death, or the curse, or all of those things. But in these verses in chapter 22, we see uh, the perfection that God has prepared. And it's perfect satisfaction, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, perfect sustenance. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, a perfect environment. There shall be no longer any curse. Perfect government, the throne of God and of the Lamb were in it. Perfect service, his bond servants shall serve him. Perfect fellowship, they shall see his face. Perfect likeness to him, his name shall be on their foreheads. Perfect light, the Lord God shall illumine them in perfect reign. They shall reign forever and ever. You know, it's, um, it's a lot, it's, obviously it covers a lot of time, it stretches into eternity. But I, I hope we just see that if we just kind of read through the book of Revelation, it gives us a pretty 
pretty simple outline of future events. There's going to be the rapture. After that, there's going to be this terrible time on earth called the tribulation. Then the Lord Jesus will return and set up his kingdom. And then at the end of that, there's the final reckoning with the great white throne, and that ushers in the eternal state. And that's what God has described for us. Now, we have a whole rest of the Bible to give us details. And, uh, you know, it doesn't tell us everything about it, of course. It's This is God. This is infinite and eternal, and we're not going to know everything about it. But there's a lot more that we can learn. I'd encourage you to find, though, there are lots of pictures of this elsewhere. You know, when Lazarus dies, this little picture of what happens with believers during the church age, and then the Lord shows up and raises him from the dead. It's a little picture of the rapture, isn't it? He's gone to be with them. And there were two believers there, Mary and Martha, who didn't die. And they got to go be with the Lord too. And by chapter 12, they're all together with the Lord in this wonderful feast. And there's perfect service and worship and fellowship that's going on in, in chapter 12. It's a little picture of this outline of the coming events. Now, and we've gone a tiny bit over. We will not spend too much time on why it's important. But I'll say this. Um, there are a few reasons why we have that it's important. Um, there, <laughs> I said earlier, some people say, um, you know, ah, this is just details. I want to do something important. I want to serve the Lord. Okay. Now, the problem with that is it's no good trying to be more spiritual than God. Uh, God put this in the Bible. And not only did he put it in the Bible, he devoted an awful lot of Bible real estate to it. So when we kind of say prophecy is important, that is not, like, I don't know who we think we're, we're accusing, but, but we're, we're accusing God, right? We're saying, God, you didn't need to put all that stuff in the Bible. It's unimportant stuff. As spiritual people, we can ignore it all and just get on with the important things. That's not what we want to say. God, there's a tremendous amount of the Bible is Bible prophecy. So it's clearly something that's important to God. And therefore, if we're spiritually minded, it should be important to us. Um, it says something to us about how we interpret the Bible and how we handle the Bible. You know, um, you could look at Bible prophecy and they're largely concerned with, there are other things, but for the most part it's concerned with either the first coming or the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And um, the vast majority of Bible prophecy will fall into one of those two things. And we have, in the first coming of the Lord Jesus, we get to see how God fulfilled those prophecies. When he said he was going to come to Bethlehem, what did he mean? Did he mean that the Lord Jesus was going to be born in just some kind of out of the way, like insignificant town? Or he actually meant he was going to be born in Bethlehem, right? Like he meant it literally. In fact, when he said he was going to come from Bethlehem and Nazareth and Egypt, even though it seemed like that couldn't possibly be, he meant all of them literally. And, and all of them were true. And, when he, and all of these things, about his first, when he said he's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, he meant. He's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's it, exactly. And this, this is how God has shown us already how we interpret Bible prophecy. Like, it's not all code. It's not all supposed to be mysterious and infinitely plastic and elastic in how we interpret it. It's, it's generally to be interpreted literally. When he said Christ was going to be born in Bethlehem, he meant he was going to be born in Bethlehem. He said he's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Humanity's going to be prayed for 30 pieces of silver. And when he says the dead in Christ, that the, the believers are going to come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years, I'm going, to, I'm going to go on record as saying I'm pretty positive he means we're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Okay? Because this is how he's already shown us prophecy is to be interpreted. We, we, we want to, we don't want to kind of just um, spiritualize everything away. 
Because if you, you might think that that will stop at prophecy, it won't stop at prophecy. If we get a, an approach to the Bible that says, oh, there are passages and I can just kind of start using my imagination to make them really allegorical and spiritual, um, well, uh, more power to you if you're able to stop yourself at prophecy, but inevitably what happens is it spreads to other areas of the Bible. And pretty soon, we, we don't take much of it seriously, or are highly selective in what we take seriously. We need to be very careful. I'll tell you, another reason it's very important is it, it, um, it tells us, uh, it, it's giving us some, well, it shows us what God is like, doesn't it? Uh, I'm sorry if I've told you this story before, but years ago, Darla and I had the um, privilege of going to see the hiding place in Harlem in the Netherlands and uh, where they hid Jews during the Second World War. And before that, we had the privilege of sitting in the little sitting room and they gave us the clearest gospel message I've ever heard. And uh, they said that in that home, for a hundred years before World War II, that the, the Tembu family had had prayer meetings for the nation of Israel. And the uh, tour guide said, because we believed God, you know, God meant all his promise, <laughs> all his prom promises to Israel. And uh, that's important. And uh, the Torah said, because if God could break all his promises to Israel, then he could break all his promises to us too. That's true. You know, God has a whole Old Testament of promises and covenants made to Abraham and to David that are non-conditional, by the way, and where he talks about giving Abraham the land and Israel the land, and they're going to possess the land, and David is going to have someone reigning on his throne and, and all of this. And if, this, if the rule is, oh, well, God made all those promises, but then Israel was bad, so God was allowed to break them all, um, hands up if you feel secure, right? <laughs> because we've been bad too, right? We, we, we're not, like, if, if it's depending on Israel's faithfulness, well, then that means our salvation is depending on our faithfulness, and we're all doomed. It's not just Israel who's going to get in trouble if that's the way God works. It's all of us. But this is important. It's not just trivia. It's not, it's not just uh, something that we talk about for interest's sake. It shows us what God is like. It shows us that we can take him seriously, and uh, we can trust him, and, and we can trust his promises, and that it doesn't depend on, on us. I, I can tell you it gives us hope when we look at this. <laughs> Darla and I have a lot of times, especially in the last two years, said, this world is not our home. And uh, because if this world were our home, <laughs> there'd be lots to be super discouraged about. It's not trending in a good direction, in case you haven't noticed. And um, the, uh, but it's not our home. We, we have something infinitely better to look forward to. And I think this is one of the reasons why prophecy is important, is it helps us to have a more heavenly mindset. Now, we don't want to be people who are just earthly-minded, and everything about it is about our lives and our futures down here and our work and our home and our whatever. We want to be people who are heavenly-minded, don't we? We want to be those kinds of people who think that what motivates us is heaven and eternity, not just the here and now. And so prophecy and taking it seriously uh, helps us with that. It um, promotes holy living in our lives. If we believe the Lord Jesus <laughs> could come today, that affects how we live. Yeah, if we know, <laughs> we, we joke with our kids, like we're away, and, and we were talking to Anastasia yesterday. We've been away for a couple of weeks, and we're on our way back, and Anastasia's going to clean. She says, oh, i got to go clean the house now, right? Um, because um, 
you know, parents are coming home tomorrow, so I've got to get the house ready for that. But there, there's something about that in our lives. If, if the Lord had said, his, told us today he was coming back, I, you, know, you know what, sad, like to our, our, my discredit anyway, and, and maybe many others as well, we'd say, okay, well, I can take it easy until kind of close to that day, and then I can get, in, get moving. But if we take seriously the Lord could back at any, any time, it's going to affect how we live. And it's going to, you can say, I don't maybe have the rest of my life, whatever that means, um, to witness to so-and-so or to encourage other Christians or to things. I don't know how much time we have, so we should be busy now. And I'll just um, say the last reason I have is Revelation 19.10, and that is, it says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That there is a way in which there are things we learn about the Lord Jesus through prophecy that we won't learn other ways. And if we just kind of ignore prophecy, then we're cutting ourselves off from, from uh, so much there is to know and learn about him. And if we love the Lord Jesus, we're going to want to know more about this. Well, thank you for your patience. Um, I will close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. I don't know how many of you have read the Narnia books, but at the end of the last battle, I mean, it's an allegory, and, um, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's giving this little allegorical representation of them going, leaving time and going into eternity. And he describes it uh, this way. It says, and for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your plan for the ages. And we just see little bits of it, Lord. And we know that um, um, one day you'll, you'll um, when we go to be with the Lord Jesus, we'll see more and we'll just appreciate it more and more with uh, the more we get to know about it. But we thank you that in this um, chaotic world, we know the God who rules over all. And we know that um, it is heaven that rules. It's not us. It's not the world, it's not the devil, it is heaven that rules. And we're so grateful for that. We thank you for giving us a part in it. We pray that we will live in light of eternity, that we would be grateful for your plans and purposes, and that we would be people who are looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus. We pray it will be soon, and we pray that you'd help us to live in such a way that when he returns, he can say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. We pray in his name, amen.